Hello everyone, this is Sakib welcoming you to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. Today we have a good friend of uh, Tennis Accent, Karen Pestena, joining the podcast. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So this is the usual drill and I'm sure you've done it in the past. You've been you know, covering tennis professionally for uh, such a long time. Uh, just uh, sh- tell our listeners how Tennis Pan- Panorama got started and what's the background story and what you've been doing. Okay, first let me uh, tell the audience that I actually work primarily in hard news, but I have been a tennis fan since I was a little kid. Um, in fact, the first tennis match I ever attended, I was a uh, preschooler. I, it was 1977, I was at the final of the U.S. Open where uh, Vilas beat Jimmy Connors which was a big upset. That was the clay coach, right? That was. It was the last year of the U.S. Open at Forest Hills, and the last year it was on a clay court. So being a little kid and being at that match at the end when the fans were lifting Vilas up after he won, it was like, wow, is this what this sport is all about? And I was hooked pretty much after that. And because of that, I'm a huge Vilas fan. <laughs> uh, but anyway, guys, I digress. Um, I have, since I, I've been a tennis fan for so long, I actually, I actually majored um, in uh, journalism in undergrad, and I went to work initially in sports. I was a sports writer for radio. And then I moved over to news. Now, I was working primarily in news, and I still do. And I kind of got back into tennis because of someone who's very familiar to tennis people, and that is Pete Bodo of now ESPN, but at the time, uh, Tennis.com. Now, I was part of what was called the Tennis World Board, which used to be on Tennis.com for many years. And I kind of got back into following tennis again by being on that board. And there was one instance where I was going to be at the Davis Cup final. This was going back to 2007. And Pete Bodo asked me if I would do a little something for the site. Because at the time, I was a big, what was called a nethead. Netheads were fans that traveled around with the U.S. Davis Cup team, Fed Cup team, and kind of followed all their matches. And I, so I happened to be a nethead at the time. And so I, I did that weekend. I covered it and wrote some things up for Tennis.com about my weekend there as a nethead. And it was after that that I actually got involved with a couple of tennis websites and I was kind of advising some, participating in others, um, just for fun because I, I love tennis and it wasn't you know, something that was not necessarily going to be a career in, but I just loved it. So while I was helping out some other websites, I decided, you know what, here I am helping out other websites when I could be doing this myself. And that's why I started Tennis Panorama. It was called something else before Tennis Panorama, and I don't know what I was thinking. I guess because I was a VLAS fan, I wanted to get the initials GV in it. So it began as GlobalVillageTennisNews.com for about a year and a half until the name changed. I know, weird story. <laughs> so, so, no, no, it's, it's, a, it's pretty inspirational too because uh, we are also trying to do uh, something similar here with, of course, your good friend Matt Zemek, who I, you know, met through 
uh, tennis Twitter. Uh, you know, most people don't believe me and Matt still haven't met, you know, uh, face to face. And my wife says, you know, you, are, uh, you guys have, you know, put together this website and, you know, he's been helping with the writing and I've been doing the podcast. We have to meet at some point. But uh, just uh, uh, taking this conversation in, you know, in the same vein, like how hard it is to break through uh, in the media capacity for you when there's so many, you know, big big outlets and, you know, uh, there are a lot of outlets that represent paywalls and uh, how hard it is for independent uh, writer or a team of writers to make ends meet. And I'm sure, you know, it's not hard to do. You you have to have a day job and this is just passion, I guess, that kicks in. But talk mm -hmm. about, you know, something along those lines, how your journey has been. Uh, my journey, I'll tell you what has helped my journey. The fact of the matter is that since I work in media, although I work in news media, it has helped me greatly. And as far as tennis, it's, you know, a lot of times it's just building up, covering small events, covering photo ops. You meet loads of people that way and make connections. It's not easy, especially for independent um, websites such as the ones we have. Um, it, you know, it, it, it's tough. And, um, you know, you do what you want to do for your site. I'm, I focus primarily on news, uh, news and information, so, sometimes editorials, but not very often, because there are a lot of people who just want to know facts. I'm about facts. I'm not about telling you what you should think. I'm just telling you about the tournaments and what's happening in them. That's what I like to do. And sometimes we will have some fun stuff on there because I like to do some of these photo ops and have people cover fun things about tennis, whether they're tennis parties or, or things like that. And, of course, the Twitter. The Twitter is a big part of our site. In fact, I mean, I love Twitter. I love tennis Twitter. And, um, in fact, years ago, our Twitter was uh, named one of the uh, tennis Twitter folks to follow, which was a nice thing to do. Because, you know, we'll put up facts, things that are going on, things we happen to be um, covering, or even even if we happen to be at a party and we're tweeting from a party. I remember one of the biggest nights in our tennis Twitter was when um, the person who was reporting um, from Indian Wells, their player party, was tweeting, live tweeting from the red carpet, or in this case, green carpet from the Indian Wells uh, tennis party. We had so, got so many followers that night. It, it was so funny. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's tough. Be, uh, for also too, it's tough for the tournaments to verify independent um, outlets because there's so many people who have tennis sites, tennis blogs. So for them, it's difficult to determine, you know, which are legitimate and which are not. So even though, it, it, yes, it's tough, and it, and it's, but it's also tough on the other side for people to verify who is legit and who is not. No, I totally get that. And, uh, you know, they just cannot let... Uh, anyone in and you know if honestly if uh, look I, I've been declined many an application and you know like if uh, Wimbledon or French Open let someone like me in right away that then it wouldn't be fun I guess you know you have to earn your and your you know time there 
So the focus of this conversation is going to be, you know, your coverage of U.S. Open. You've attended it as a fan. Now you've been there as in media capacity. And uh, we, you know, we can talk about those things. I've attended the Open myself, but I think you've just taken it to a new level. <laughs> I, so, have, I have attended the Open since 1977, with the exception of a couple of years when I was uh, in grad school, when I started early, I had an outward bound thing and then something else. And those were the only two years that I did not attend the U.S. Open. Okay. So <laughs> you, you, you will be answering the question. And, uh, so let's start this. Uh, if someone's coming to the Open for the first time, you know, what should they be planning for? I mean, if they're looking to see a star, would you recommend coming the first week? Or would you recommend if someone is a Djokovic or a Serena or a Roger fan, they should come, you know, maybe second week, take the chances to see a prize player at a, you know, at the show court. Uh, so let's start this conversation. Okay. What are your opening suggestions here? Okay, if you're coming to the U.S. Open for the first time, um, and also if you've never um, been to this the New York City area, I would suggest that you come the first week. The first I would say to ensure that you want to you want to see your favorite player come the first few days of the tournament. In fact, many people ask me this all the time, and I say to ensure that you see your favorite player, you want to come the first two days and get day and night session tickets. That way, you cover everything. Um, that that's how you will ensure that you see your favorite player. Also, to um, the first few days of the U.S. Open, although busy, are not as chaotic as it is in the middle weekend. Those four days, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, are the busiest days of the tournament. They set records every day, and it's just crazy. And you really have to have your bearings about you to go all over the place and know what you're doing on that middle weekend. But I will tell you that coming in to visit the U.S. Open, you need to come in with a bit of a strategy. First off, um, you know, I always tell people, plan on seeing the players you think will not be back the following year, people who you think might retire, because it may be your, one of the few opportunities to see them again. So um, also, I always tell people, look at the, the, uh, the not just the draw, but the um, order of play the, the night before and kind of plan what matches you, go, you want to see. For an ex example, a couple of years ago, well, more than a couple of years ago, um, my husband and my child and I were like, oh, oh look, Gasquet is about is going to play Monfils on I guess it was Armstrong, um, and it's going to be the third match. You don't wait to go right before the third match begins on that court. Go to the match before, so you ensure that you have a seat to see that match. That's what you have to do with the U.S. Open. You really have to strategize in terms of seeing the matches you want to see, especially if it's that middle weekend. Now, if it, they're going to be on a court that's a, a stadium, I mean, Ash Stadium or Armstrong, if you have a ticketed seat for Armstrong, um, then, you know, you don't have to worry because you already have a seat. But if you're going to um, 
one of the outer courts where grandstand or the top level of uh, the new Louis Armstrong Stadium, you definitely have to strategize. Uh, that is without no I think I, I yep. agree with you and uh, Karen is spot on I've been the open myself a lot of times and this is a strategy like the line especially on the Labor Day weekend especially when the crowds you know are there around 2 or 3 p.m. then especially on Louis Armstrong the lines are really you know sometimes very long and players and, and fans are not leaving because sometimes the schedule is really packed and and I think Karen is really I think the strategy should be if you want to see say Petro Kvitova or someone go there the match before because when the match ends the crowd that's inside would leave and then you may have the opportunity to go find a good seat. So mm -hmm. Karen, for some a veteran fan like me who's been to the Open for 14-15 times, uh, I've seen the finals, I've been to the semis. The only few days that I haven't gone are I think the men's fourth round uh, and the women's fourth round and the quarterfinals because that time I usually am either back in Boston after the Labor Day weekend. So how good is that a ticket even though the matches are less but you can, uh, I, I also have noticed the prices after Labor Day become a little more affordable <laughs> when the semifinal and finals kick in. So talk about mm -hmm. that span which a lot of fans, you know, US Open is still sold out but those mm -hmm. are tickets sometimes on TV you wish, oh man I could have stayed Tuesday and watched. Uh, there was a year when Goran made the semis in 96. You know, so those are the matches you want to see. Uh, mm -hmm. So talk about that span from, say, uh, day after Labor Day till, say, the women's semis on Thursday. Yeah, sure. Um, well, there are not as many matches going on singles-wise. So it's a good time to go, especially if you're not, a, you know, if you're going to the U.S. Open for the first time and you're not used to seeing so many matches, it's good to go on those days because then you can sit through the matches without having to court hop all over the place, you know. And I think that's, that's good. In fact, um, uh, actually, friends of mine, who I was trying to tell them, well, if, you, if you're really into tennis, you really want to go the first few days and see everybody, but if you want to see and sit through matches and not have to get up and run around, then later on the tournament is for you. And fourth round, that's a you know a good time to do that. Although, yes, there are, there are multiple matches going on. There's not as many, and you don't have to run around and court up if you don't want to. But it's a little bit more relaxed, too, because it's after the um, Labor Day holiday, and you're not constantly bumping into people. There's still a lot of people on the grounds because there are other matches going on, the doubles, the mixed doubles, and then, the you know, the juniors and a wheelchair. Yeah, I was going to get to the juniors, so I think that's the time if you are uh, following some, you know, prospective, you know, junior players on both sides of the draws. That's a good time to catch a glimpse of uh, those names. Yes, definitely. And I always make a point of seeing the juniors. And in fact, um, I, I brought my child around to see the junior matches just to see how they are doing. And also, too, it's also good to watch the wheelchair players. You see how much strength they have. Yes, they may not have the use of their legs, but their, but their strength in their upper body I'm telling you, you have to go. I tell everyone, you have to see the wheelchair athletes. They are they are tremendous, tremendous. No, definitely, that's that's something uh, gets talked about a lot. But you're right. Uh, you know, uh, this is uh, this, it's a spectacle in its own, especially what they're able to do. And uh, yeah, so uh, let me ask you about the qualifying week. That's something I'm planning to do this year for the first time. I've 
thought about it doing many times in the past, but then uh, mm -hmm. you get you make plans with friends, and then someone wants to see Federer, someone wants to see Nadal, and you end up buying those tickets, and you make the trip. But uh, what's the value for that week? You know, if you go because the draws of 128 players each, and uh, what kind of value yeah. you get? And then I'm sure the stars are still have arrived. They are practicing side by side mm -hmm. the big names. So talk about that week of qualifying. Qualies. I have been telling people. For years, the qualies, they're free. They are free. And they've been getting better and better because the U.S. Open now has, well, they started this a couple of years ago. The week of the qualies is called Fan Week. They have the players practicing on big courts, on smaller courts. They have a lot of activities. Um, and also they have, um, I mean, you'll see future stars and also veterans playing in the qualies. It gets more, it gets more and more crowded every year for those qualies. And I'm happy to see that because it's free. It's free tennis, free tennis. And in fact, just today, um, Wednesday, the U.S. Open uh, put up the list of all the events that are be taking place on, during Fan Week. I'm sure they'll add more. I actually put this list on the website um, so people can see what's going to be going on. So many great things. And they're even going to have um, the, some uh, legends playing some matches during Fan Week, which I think is tremendous. Uh, so, uh, is there so, any value? Because last year, U.S. Open uh, had the media day, uh, I think, out outdoors, right? It was in uh, uh, different courts, Arthur Ashe and Louis Armstrong. So, do you recommend, uh, and w first of all, what's a bandwidth for a fan? Can the fan be part of a media day, at least from the stands, or that's all? It yes, it can be. Yes, it's going to be. Last year, they did this in Louis Armstrong Stadium, and they're doing it again uh, this year. And... Um, Fans can just come into Louis Armstrong and watch the interviews, or I should say news conferences, because they're not really interviews. They're news conferences. They can watch uh, the media ask questions of the players. Anybody can come and sit and watch um, from the stands. And that's, I think, very much added value, because it's kind of nice to see, actually see a news conference going on live at the U.S. Open. Oh, and of course, I can't forget this. Um, the draw is going to be taking place at the U.S. Open at the South Plaza. Um, and I believe that's on the, what is it, the Thursday. The Thursday of that week. And, and something else for people who are coming to the Qualies to see, which I think is fantastic. And, of course, if it happens to rain, it'll get moved indoors somewhere. That's to be determined. But that's another great thing to see. All right, so let's take the conversation a uh, little bit outside of tennis because uh, the three-week U.S. Open quality is included. New York City becomes a hub of, uh, you know, a lot of players are staying in the city or Queens, Manhattan. Uh, I was there for a few years and I, I did get a chance to see, you know, a few players take the train. And then I've heard stories, you know, like Safin was hanging out in Soho or someone caught mm -hmm. Federer at the... At you know at the Central Park. So what what other events are happening? Because you see a lot of uh, stuff on the social media. Lacoste has an event, or sometimes mm -hmm. Nike used to have this event where Sampras and Agassi played, you know, in Midtown. So if 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 a fan is planning their trip, uh, what is their best source to know these things? Of course, everything is available on Twitter. But is there uh, is there any recommendation? Uh, what they should be following to see if uh, Roger and Rafa or Serena are going to be somewhere or if Nole is signing autographs at, you know, the Lacoste boutique. Uh, 
in, mm -hmm. you know, mid-college? Yes, so many of these um, from Lacoste and Nike, they kind of make these announcements kind of uh, maybe the week before. So be, uh, you know, pay attention to uh, tennis Twitter, as it were. Um, even I find out at the last minute sometimes about these events. But one thing I can say definitely, um, the U.S. Open hasn't had a, an official players party in some time. So basically what I call the players party is an event called Taste of Tennis. Taste of Tennis is an event where tennis players and chefs get together. They raise money for the ch a charity. Um, this year it's taking place on uh, the evening of August the 22nd. I yes, August the 22nd. And to find out more about it, people can look at tasteoftennis.com to find out the specifics. But a lot of players show up and um, hang out with the chefs. And people can buy tickets to this event if they want to. And um, I forget how much they cost, but they're not cheap. <laughs> but if you want to see players, that's a good spot because it's become basically the unofficial players party of the U.S. Open this event. Okay, so that's, that's really good to know. So let's come back to the venue. So again, what, what, is, what are some of the pet things in Karen's list, like, you know, for the must must-haves or don't-dos. Let's talk about the don't-dos. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and I can go first, and you can agree with me too, because I've realized over the years you don't carry a big bag. If you mm -hmm. don't have one, you can cut through, and the, that line moves very fast. Yes, if you, don't, if you don't bring any bags, you can get on the speed line, as they call it. And a friend of mine suggested that, yeah, wear, uh, wear cargo shorts with the 10 million pockets in them. <laughs> That'll speed you through the line. And I'm like, oh, I never thought about that. But then I don't have to worry about that because I'm media, so I don't have to go through that, that screening. I do go through screening. But uh, not the same. Um, as yeah, don't bring laptops or um, tablets. They won't let you in with them. And certain camera lenses, they will not let you in with. Um, things that are professional, only the pros are allowed to bring in who are media. Um, I would say too, please wear comfortable shoes, unless you think you're going to be staying on one court for the entire time you're there. You know, wear comfortable shoes, sneakers, flats, whatever. I have, let me tell you, I have seen enough uh, <laughs> women wearing heels, I guess, <laughs> to look cute at the open. That's fine and dandy, but if you're going court hopping in heels, good luck to you. <laughs> um, let me think, what else? Um, oh, yes. As of, you know, last year we had crazy heat during the U.S. Open. And I tell everybody, you have to keep hydrated. Bring in water with you. Get water um, when you're at the open. You can refill your water bottles at um, different uh, water fountains all over the place. Um, one thing I like to do, I like to bring in with me a what's called a tiny, tiny spritzer bottle. I don't fill it with water until I get into the U.S. Open because you can't really bring certain liquids in. I mean, it's only water, but they don't know that, and they'll probably take it from you if you do. If you do fill it up beforehand, fill it up with water, and if it gets really hot, you can kind of mist yourself. Um, I've been doing that for years, um, and of course, sunscreen. I tell everyone, please, please wear sunscreen. You never know how hot it's going to be and how 
tough the sun is, especially at that uh, that time of the year. Um, let me think. Oh, and <laughs> a fishing buddy of my husband's reminds me not to forget to wear or bring a sun shirt. A sun shirt, which kind of prevents you from getting <laughs> sunburn. A lot of people wear these sun shirts when they go swimming at the beach or, or whatnot, but they start at like SPF 30 and go up, and that's helpful. Ah, also, if you're going to be at the U.S. Open from basically sunup to sundown, uh, a good thing is to dress in layers. You know, it'll be, uh, it could be 100 degrees during the day, but then the wind will pick up at night and make it chilly. So bring, you know, a light jacket with you or even a light jacket that could be used in case it rains or anything. But now with all the covered stadiums, um, there's enough shade around. And also if it happens to rain, the roofs will close. Or if you're on a court that doesn't have a roof, you can go find a place to, to hide until the rain stops, <laughs> whether it's underneath awnings or in restaurants or in some of the stores there's always a place to go and that goes for if it's really really hot and the heat rule comes in into effect um people can go into stores um because there are loads of stores and indoor restaurants on the side of the open now get yeah. every yeah. more and more of them absolutely and, uh, i remember 2010 us open was pretty hot one of the hotter us opens and uh, we were just hiding looking for shade and then, uh, and the cost, uh, you know, if you're there as a fan, uh, Karen, you will agree, even though you are in the media capacity, the water, uh, you know, is, a, is the most sought after commodity and it's expensive. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. my, my learning experience was, you know, you should save your bottle and then find, there, there are taps all over US Open if you are okay to drink with that water. Otherwise, if you're there for like eight, nine hour day, you could go mm -hmm. through like $20, $30 just in water, depending on how hydrated you are. This is true. This is true. And there are water fountains all over. Yeah. And in fact, there are, um, I know near the practice courts, there's a couple of these water fountains that are basically you where you there's a tap where you can refill your bottle. So it makes it's, it's it's really good for people who are bringing their bottles over there, easier to fill. I mean, there's some of them all over the grounds, but the ones I know near the practice courts are really good for that. Talking about practice, a friend of mine is from the West Coast. He's been, you know, he's going to be covering uh, uh, the DC Open for tennis with an accent as a photographer, and uh, he says uh, Indian Wells is the most fan-friendly tournament because U.S. Open. The practice courts are a joke. Again, you know, we don't want to criticize the Open, but, you know, mm -hmm. the way they are structured, especially the Wawrinkas, Federer, Djokovic, you know, all these guys will be practicing on the far practice courts. So the visibility for fans uh, is not uh, there. So compared to other tournaments in the, in the U.S., what you have covered, uh, do you agree with that statement? And uh, what are the more fan-friendly uh, events in the U.S. Open series? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I agree that that the Indian Wells practice is really great. U.S. Open is getting better um, because within the past couple of years, they now have um, uh, stands for fans to sit and watch the players practice. They didn't have this a few years ago. They have it now. And they even post the times that the players will be practicing and on which courts. And from what I see of the U.S. Open, they are going to be having some of the major players practice on the grandstand court. And after the practices, they'll be um, signing autographs. 
So the U.S. Open is, is really stepping up its game in terms of the practice because practice has become such a big thing. I mean, it's great to see the players you know, just hanging out, practicing, and it's also an opportunity for fans to get even closer to them because, let's face it, if you're in big stadiums, yes, you see the players, but you're not that close to them. <laughs> But um, yeah, and again, a lot of the you know a lot of the smaller um, uh, tournaments, they all are pretty good when it comes to practices. I mean, from uh, from DC to Cincy, um, I can't say much about um, Montreal and Toronto because I haven't been up there in a few years, so I don't know if they've changed or not. But um, I always tell people that if you have a chance to go, to go to a smaller tournament to see how it works. You know, it, it, U.S. Open is one thing. Majors are one thing because they're huge events. But smaller tournaments, are you can really get up close and personal with the players. Uh, absolutely. I, I've had the privilege of going to Newport for the last three years, and that's a very fan-friendly tournament as well. Mm -hmm. So we were talking about the heat policy, you know, so the, the heat situation of the policy with, you know, with water and lemonade, keep hydrated. So Karen, mm -hmm. how has the food scene improved with the U.S. Open? I mean, oh, yeah, it seems to be getting better every year. They're, they seem to add more and more things. Um, and there are a lot, there are a few more indoor restaurants. Um, also... My favorite spot, to, even though, you know, we have media dining, but sometimes I will go out over to Court 17. Court 17, they have their own, it's kind of like a food trucks, a barbecue backyard, as they call it. Um, I actually go for one of the crepes over there. I forget the name of the crepe stand, but I, I love the crepes they make over there. Um, and that's the kind of thing I'll journey out of the media <laughs> to get. No, I think in the last few years, uh, I've noticed uh, the Fuku Korean fried chicken. I think those chains are packed. It's pretty delicious and it's a little expensive, you know, because they, they are the venue. Uh, I'd have to be using my entire media balance for that. And I, and I do sometimes. <laughs> So, so, of course, you know, I've, I've lived in New York for some time, but you are a New Yorker. So New York City is known for its food, no secret. So uh, what is, uh, is there any advice that extend uh, beyond the grounds? Because Flushing, there's a Chinatown, there's an Indian neighborhood mm -hmm. not too far, you know, mm -hmm. Corona Park. So any any neighborhoods you want to give a, you know, call, shout out uh, well, here? Oh, yeah. Well, Flushing, of course, which is not far at all. Um and Astoria, or if I'm talking about Queens, yeah. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of great places to go in Flushing in general just by walking around. And sometimes the places that you think that look like dives or whatnot serve fantastic food. <laughs> and, and yeah, and Astoria, of course, it's all kind of things in Astoria from, from Greek to everything else. Um, yeah, and, and, and people should remember that if you want to go out off of the grounds for a little while, as long as you get your hands stamped, when you go out, you can come back in. A lot of people don't realize that. They think if they leave, they can't come back. But you can <laughs> if you want to go off the grounds to eat. That's good to know. And before, we were, before we started recording, we were talking about how the Airbnb market, you know, takes, uh, you know, takes over the U.S. open surroundings. So any good neighborhoods you would recommend, someone who's making the trip or has made the trip but never stayed, so what are mm -hmm. some of the neighborhoods you would recommend that are convenient uh, for the commute to U.S. Open and also still is in the center of things? 
Okay, I've heard a lot of people have been staying um, in in Flushing and in um, also Astoria and um, let's see, Jackson Heights, basically neighborhoods that are around that seven train for the most part. And also too, um, Manhattan, east side of Manhattan, which is usually pricey anyway. So I think the Airbnb folks probably make a fortune during the US Open on the uh, east side of Manhattan. Um, because let's face it, a lot of people don't wanna take the subway to the US Open. So a lot of them would rather take the Long Island Railroad. It's a bit more expensive, but it's faster and the, the air conditioning is better. <laughs> uh, and of course the hotels, they make a fortune just in general. The U it doesn't even matter if it's the US Open, it's New York City. So <laughs> they're gonna be making a fortune anyway. So it happens all the time. I stay on mute and start talking. So, so I think that's quite insightful. And last but not the least, you know, uh, do you have a special suggestion for the U.S. Open night matches if uh, someone has to make a choice? And mm -hmm. uh, is it a night match because you know the weather is definitely uh, sometimes more bearable, even though it's 89 degrees. You know, with no sun, you can still sit <laughs> through that. So, would you? Experience is a good experience because for people who like to see celebrities, they usually pop out at night. <laughs> They're usually there for the night matches on um, Arthur in Arthur Ashe Stadium. They also there's also a nice session over in Armstrong now. But if you want to see the celebrities, you go over to um, uh, Arthur Ashe Stadium. That's where you're going to see the celebrities. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because there's friends of mine who, although they like tennis, it's not that they're diehard tennis fans, but they, they like celebrities, so they, they'll go to the evening sessions. Yeah, my, my closest brush for the celebrity was 2001 with the All-Williams first final. So mm -hmm. we were there uh, because that day Becker and McEnroe had to play uh, exhibition one set, and Becker, I think, had a foot injury. So I was disappointed being a Becker fan, but we were, getting, we were waiting for the women's final to start, and then... Uh, Spike Lee was there, and all of a sudden, in, in a crowd full of people, I kept looking at him, and he looked back at me and nodded. So that was my moment. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is when the crowds were filing in. He was in a white suit, and then my, and, and my friend who was, uh, I, I was with, he said, who's that guy? I said, come on, you don't know that Spike Lee? And of course, you know, that's slightly before when you can Google on your phone. So I should mm -hmm. explain what Spike Lee had done. But yeah, the U.S. Open is a place where you do see a lot of these big names. You just have to sometime notice because they are also there for tennis and you they're, they're easy they're hard to you know mm -hmm. they're easy to miss because if you're not paying attention that's yeah, true and in new york there's celebrities all over the place so <laughs> you're bound to bump into one anyway <laughs> so I, I i know karen you've written this list before but do you want to talk about the list if fans want to reach out your blog or your site because uh, we covered quite a lot but there's a lot of in-depth analysis mm -hmm. And the link. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, one of the first things that I put up on our site is called uh, Court and Karen's uh, U.S. Open Tips. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty long, expense, extensive list of suggestions that I have I've had uh, over the years. And in fact, I have still have to update it because I'm always updating it. Um, you will want to go, you can do a Google search for. Uh, Corton, as in K-O-U-R-T-I-N, Karen's U.S. Open Tips. Um, it should pop up. Also, too, it's in our Twitter feed. Uh, 
And in fact, what I'll do is I will pin it to the top of our Twitter feed. It's uh, uh, Tennis News TPN. That's a Twitter at Tennis News TPN. And that's Tennis Panorama News. Not that you know you need a plug-in at this podcast. You're, <laughs> you're way, you know, you're way out of our league. You've done this for a long time, but yeah, this is uh, this is so good to have you here. And uh, I I learned you know a lot of things while we were just talking. And hopefully we can have you back. Aaron. this was uh, this is a, this is a good conversation. Hopefully the listeners can take full benefit of this. You know, and uh, you can follow her on Twitter if you don't already follow at uh, Tennis News TPN. And yeah, look out for their coverage. They do cover a lot in tennis. And a big shout out to Radio Circle who keep producing these shows. And uh, this is Saqib uh, signing off with with Garrett Pestena. So thanks for listening and we'll be back with another episode next week. Bye for now. Welcome to this segment of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. I am Matt Zemek. He is Saqib Ali and we uh, do... Once again, thank Karen of Tennis Panorama for joining this week's episode. Uh, very timely reminder, you know, a month in advance of the U.S. Open, you know, not right before it, but a month in advance. So you can really plan and prepare if you are going to New York. So thanks again to Karen for joining us. And uh, so now we're going to talk about the U.S. Open Series, the summer North American hardcourt season with Sakib. And, and the first thing that we have to do is hit on the – Ivan Lendl, Alexander Zverev divorce. I wrote about it at tennisaccent.com. So you can get my viewpoint at our website. But I have to ask Sakib, uh, who's followed Zverev's career very closely, what do you think about this? And more specifically, what do you think it means if, if there is any profound meaning uh, to attach to this story? Hey, Matt. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you definitely wrote the article and I enjoyed the angles. You know, you explored there and um, at least you know I'm on the same side of things the way you started this is this was expected when uh, a German translation came out about you know Lendl golf the dog analogy and you know it was light-hearted and then Boris Becker comes out and says the Patricio Epe uh, who was I think the manager of Alexander Zverev and also managed Stefano Tsitsipas when I had to you know call him to get an interview permission so when that separation those things are public, you know something's happening. So now, what is my reaction? Yeah, this is, uh, if you take those two incidents out, uh, I didn't see this happening. I thought they'd at least survive the US Open because uh, I thought, again, from far, without knowing much from Lendl, I thought this partnership is gonna come to uh, fruition at some point uh, because Zverev is too good not to start winning. And when Zverev declared during Wimbledon that you know he's having issues with his former manager who was like a family, so you knew, like there was, outside of uh, the court stuff that was bothering his progress and he wasn't able to give it a full go. But then, of course, you know, you only clap with two hands. So there was a Lendl component when he was seen and not seen at the major tune-up tournaments in Europe and clay. And even at the French Open, I believe he was not there. He just came for the grass. So you knew something was up. Uh, but yeah, I think, let's see. I mean, Zverev family has been, you know, his core unit. Uh, he has the highest regard of his dad. I'm sure Misha Zverev is there behind the scenes. Then uh, I think uh, Marcelo Melo. So you know the Jess Green, the, the unit is there. Ivan Lendl was just, you know, the big profile coach who's carried Andy Murray to the promised land. And I firmly believe that partnership is going to at least fetch a slam at some point or at least a slam final. Well, now, you know, the cat's out of the bag, it's over. 
so yeah, let's see. I mean, what goes on? I mean, I don't think Sasha is going to be jumping too soon to make any new announcements. And this whole uh, star coach, you know, thing which carried away, I think carried out from NBA and maybe soccer. Uh, it's good. I've always had the belief the Severin Luthies and the Marian Vidas, you know, uh, you know, are, are the you know are the core guys who get the things done, or even Tony Nadal, or even you know back in the day, you know, you didn't see these kind of like you know all star coaches. So yeah, let's see what happens with Zverev. Uh, he's definitely got some matches in Hamburg. Was playing maybe with a chip on the shoulder, maybe with some freedom. Uh, should have won that match against Basilashvili, but then at the same time should have lost it even earlier. So uh, this is again a fallback on our conversation, uh, which I, by the way, enjoyed. I listened to it. Uh, I mean, you know, it's kind of a geeky thing to do to listen to your own podcast. I got that out of the way, you and I talking about Zverev, Theme, and Fonini. So yeah, Zverev and Fonini got some matches. Theme lost to uh, Rublev. By the time this podcast is released, you know, we'll be in the Washington week. So uh, using Zverev as a cornerstone for this conversation, Matt, you, me, and Mert did a uh, roundtable podcast in the clay season, uh, making you know ESPN style power rankings on both tours. So let me ask you: uh, Is Sasha Zverev in the top five? Is Juan Martin Del Potro out of contention? Is he one of the top five guys for you, or is he a dark horse? Maybe he can sneak in here now because there has been you know a revival in his camp. Uh, hopefully for good. Uh, you know, Lendl was a great fit, but how do you see? Uh, if you have a top five list, how far Zverev is away from that list, or is he in that list? Uh, he's definitely not in a top <laughs> in a top five right now. I mean, I, I don't think it's a particularly close call. Okay. If you were, if you were to provide a, an ATP top five, you know, on hard courts heading into the U.S. Open, uh, you'd have to, you know, obviously start with the big three. Then you'd probably have to have Sitsipas and Team somewhere in the mix. Probably Stan, since he did have a good Roland Garros, and Grass is never going to agree with him on hard courts. He's certainly in the conversation. And then you'd probably have one of Hachinov or Medvedev lurking somewhere around there. And Kane Shikori, he does relatively well at the U.S. Open, so he has to be there. And then maybe, maybe, maybe in the top, at the back end of the top ten, you could include Zverev, but I really even wouldn't. I wouldn't even ha- have him in the top ten at this point. I mean, he's just a nowhere man right now, and that's not meant to be an indictment or an insult. It's just he's lost right now. He is lost, no, and no. I don't think many people right. would would disagree with that. And he's going through this transition. It's it's weird enough. It's weird to say it, but there's really no pressure on him going into the U.S. Open because there are absolutely no expectations of him. So can he play I mean, with that, the house money? That's how far he's fallen. So I'm saying, can he play with the house money? Because a lot of time, you know, uh, we've talked in basketball, even offline and on the podcast, a lot of time a coaching change does wonders. But, of course, the problem lay deeper. Even Lendl said, you know, his philosophy would not have worked fully as where it was distracted off court. And, you know, those are huge, you know, issues because he's a young man and a lot of times we don't realize what the breakup of that uh, personal relation with the manager. So the, my question uh, for, uh, formation is basically because I followed you and you're writing and you've given you know, a lot of inputs on Grigor Dimitrov, even when he's not close, he wins a couple of matches. And I know you are a very objective writer. You don't, you know, you don't play favorites, but you have you know, at least uh, shown some you know, optimism on Dimitrov and his success. And you've you know, uh, gone on to write multiple you know, analysis 
pieces on his game. So with this angle, like you said, at the back of the line, could Sasha Zverev sneak in? Okay, fine, he's not even in your top 10. But you think, is he a guy who can play with house money and just, uh, you know, surprise uh, all of us? Well, first, I, I'm going to address your question, Socket, but first I need to say that, you know, I wrote that one positive column about Dimitrov at Roland Garros where he played legitimately well, and it took some clutch serving from Vavrinka. Vavrinka almost made the semis at Roland Garros, and Stan had to serve big on key points to see Dimitrov off in three tiebreakers. So ever since I wrote that one positive column about Dimitrov, and you know Matt Zemek writing a positive column about <laughs> Dimitrov, it's kind of like finding a needle in a haystack. <laughs> ever since I wrote that positive column, Dimitrov has plummeted. So that was a lesson to me. You know, not not to you know focus too much on the positive. If, you know, if it's just a couple matches that I needed, I needed to see a lot more from Grigor before praising him. So, you know, that that taught me. That put me in my place. So with that in mind, you know, I'm not really expecting anything from Zverev the rest of the year. But now to directly answer your question, I mean, he is playing with house money. You know, if you if you have no expectations, you are playing with house money. That's what the term means. Um, but the whole notion of playing with house money means that you have nothing to lose, right? You you you. No one's expecting anything of you. If you do well, it's gravy. You know, it's going above expectations because if expectations are at zero and you do anything more than zero, you've exceeded expectations and you can feel somewhat good about yourself. But the whole idea about having nothing to lose is you play freely. You know, that that is the whole point. And so can Alexander Zverev hit the ball freely? Can he hit big? Can he play very, very aggressive, liberated tennis? And so if he's willing to do that, maybe a surprise is in store. But from everything that we've seen, everything that we know, is he <laughs> likely to play freely? Definitely not. So that's the skepticism, which is very much warranted. Maybe this divorce from Lendl will relieve him in some way of, of pressure, and he will just go out and try to clobber the ball. And, and if he does that, he could be a very dangerous force. So that, that possibility has to be allowed for. You just wouldn't expect it, however. So the possibility is there, but it, it's not something you would want to bet on. And uh, interesting, you went through some names, and I think that's how my top five would stack up, maybe an exception here and there. I'm, uh, I would have included, you know, at the tail end of the conversation, maybe a John Isner or a Kevin Anderson, even though both men haven't played much due to respective injuries. And, you know, even though Isner won Newport, so I would have included maybe them in my top 10. Uh, but yeah, I'm kind of with you with Dominic team. I think he could be the X factor if the U.S. Open continues to play like what they had last year for condition and surface. And team, if he's coming in with some momentum and health, I think he could be, I think, he, I think he's a legit top four guy right now. Stefano Tsitsipas, uh, this is, you know, the sophomore season, you know. Uh, he lost to Fabiano at Wimbledon. He's playing Washington. He's going to be playing a back-to-back packed schedule. Of course, his young legs can afford it. So I, I'm more curious about team. Sissipas is also my fifth guy. I would rank Zverev slightly higher. Uh, but you're right, I think he's at the tail end. And uh, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about team. He's uh, both of us on, on, you know, on, on our ranks. He's number four. So you think uh, matchup-wise, uh, uh, who's, you know, who's, who's the toughest matchup for him on hard courts? I know, very hypothetical, but Novak Djokovic is the standard. He's the toughest out for anyone. 
How do you fancy a team Djokovic match and high bouncing uh, flushing meadow hard courts if uh, the courts speeds and conditions have to be retained this year? Well, the, the, the main point for Dominic Team, and I did write about this at TennisAccent.com just after Wimbledon, uh, the Wednesday or Thursday after Wimbledon, was that Team just needs to get to a hardcourt major semi. I mean, you know, so you know, we're, at, we're at the point in the tennis season where the next seven months are going to feature hardcourt tennis. Uh, so it, it, in in these next seven months, and I'm leaving out December since there's no tennis played in December. Uh, in these next seven months of activity, it's going to be on hard courts, and team needs to walk away from these seven months with at least one hard court major semi. Because if we get to uh, Roland Garros, you know he's, he's going to once again have finalist points to defend and then Wimbledon's a place where you know making a deep run it you know just simply isn't very likely so if he wants to get his career unstuck if he wants his career to rise to a higher level that's going to mean banking large numbers of points at the biggest hardcore tournaments and and so you know he won the Indian Wells title certainly an impressive accomplishment but now that needs to translate to the majors so before Dealing with a Djokovic semi, the main thing is that Dominic team needs to get there. Uh, so, I mean, that is certainly priority number one. Now, to, to deal with that scenario, it is, I mean, Djokovic is the toughest out in tennis. You know, he, he is the person who's hardest to knock out. And, and I mean that in the sense of not just beating him, but winning the last point. Roger Federer could write a novel about how hard it is to win the last point against Novak Djokovic in a high-stakes late stage major tournament match. So it's a really big ask. And this is not to make excuses for Djokovic. This is simply to point out the reality. He's a bad wind player. Everyone knows this. Even his fans would concede that he's a bad wind player. And of course, that the wind was prominent in that Roland Garros semifinal against team. In Arthur Ashe Stadium, there are lots of different health, uh, you know, conditions, condition-based factors and some could hurt Djokovic, such as extreme heat and humidity, uh, you know, which did definitely affected affected him last year at the U.S. Open, especially against Fuksovics, uh, also against Joao Souza, but especially Fuksovics. Um, you know, if that humidity hap- uh, re- returns against team, you know, Djokovic could be in trouble. But the one thing you definitely do not get inside Arthur Ashe Stadium: wind, because of the big overhang. You know, through 2014. When Arthur Ashe was a completely open bowl without that overhang, you know, the overhang was built in 2015. The actual roof was in place for 2016. But through 2014, that was an open bowl. Listeners of this podcast who know their tennis, who have followed tennis for at least 20 years throughout the 21st century, will recall the 2004 U.S. Open quarterfinal between Roger Federer and Andre Agassi. I mean, that was almost a uh, hurricane level wind that was, you know, extreme wind about as bad as I've ever seen on a court. Um, another example would be the uh, 2012 men's semifinals with Tomas Birdik and Andy Murray in the first semifinal and then David Ferrer against Djokovic in the second semifinal before that got called midway through the second set, I believe, uh, you know, that semifinal Saturday also had extreme wind conditions so Djokovic would be really vulnerable in those kinds of conditions but now with that overhang 
Uh, it's very different. And it does need to be pointed out that Djokovic won the U.S. Open only once through 2014, but that uh, he's won two of the last four U.S. Opens, and he's won in two of his last three appearances because he didn't even um, participate in the 2017 U.S. Open, which was won by Rafa. And, and so having that overhang, which provides both shade and resistance to wind, it's, it's not an idle coincidence in my mind that, that Djokovic's best U.S. Open years have coincided with the, with the building of that overhang. So it would be a very tough ask for team. He would need the heat index to be close to 100 degrees. That's the thing that really he would need more than anything else to beat Djokovic. And, you know, we, we've just, you talked with Karen from Tennis Panorama about the U.S. Open, and, you know, it's whether we like to talk about it or not, I don't really like to talk about it. It's not really fun. But we do have to acknowledge that weather conditions are the ultimate variable coming up in New York. No, very well said. Uh, weather has been, you know, uh, playing havoc in New York for quite some time. And last year was, you know, uh, pretty ex exceptional circumstances with the Federer-Milman match. And then, you know, Djokovic-Fuksovic match. There were a lot of matches, Djokovic-Milman. I mean, it was incredible uh, what the weather did last year. So let's take a quick switch uh, as the hard courts are heating up. Uh, what are your top five players in no particular order? I mean, uh, for the for the ladies' side, uh, the WTA side, how are you, how are you stacking them up uh, before the big names actually have taken the court? Well, so the first thing, Sakib, is that if if you say you have a very specific idea of what's going to happen on the WTA at the U.S. Open, I'm not going to trust you. I'm, I might not say that you're lying, but I will certainly say that you're overconfident. So that, that, that's the first point, that the WTA, which you know I have thoroughly enjoyed in 2019, and I think the WTA is a quality product right now. Nevertheless, it's a quality product which also has a lot of instability. And the, the main stat, I'm, you're probably going to hear me repeat this on other podcasts before the U.S. Open, but it's definitely the kind of thing that's worth repeating, is that we've had 12 major semifinal slots through the first three majors of 2019, and we've had 12 different women occupying those semifinal slots. So there's the possibility at the U.S. Open that we could have 16 unique women semifinalists for 16 major semifinal berths in 2019. And really one of the main storylines is, will we get at least one repeat major semifinalist in 2019, or will it be 0 for 16? So with that in mind, you know, this, this is a landscape defined by unpredictability. Never, so with, that's the background for my top five. Hmm. I, I am going to make Naomi Osaka the favorite for the U.S. Open, barring an injury in Canada or Cincinnati. Uh, she, hard, hard courts are where she is at home. So the fact that she's struggled on clay and grass, I don't really factor that into my assessment of this upcoming summer hard court season. I mean, hard courts are really where she delivers the goods. The obvious question mark and the, the, the point of uncertainty relative to Osaka is after the coaching change, you know, is this going to be a different Osaka compared to the version that we saw in Australia? But I'm nevertheless, I'm going to place some trust in her and make her the favorite. And then I'd have Ash Barty close behind her at number two. You know, she obviously won a major at Roland Garros. Uh, didn't win at Wimbledon, but she did win the lead-up on grass. She's been the most consistent player across all surfaces on the WTA Tour in 2019. So that has to give her uh, high marks, and it has to give her a high position on my list. So Osaka won, 
Barty 2. And then, if, if I'm really being honest, it is really hard to fill out that top five. I would say Karolina Pliskova. Karolina Pliskova, probably at three, just because she's always knocking on the door. I thought she had the road to the Wimbledon final when she got to Manic Monday, and the draw looked fairly good for her. Obviously, it didn't happen against Mukova in that extended 13-11 third set. But the thing about Pliskova that does recommend her as a prediction and as a favorite at the U.S. Open is that she's really good at making quarters and semis across the course of the full season. So she should be in the mix. She probably gets my number three vote. And really then, it's, it is an absolute you know, question mark in terms of who's four, who's five. I could give number four to Simona Halep based on reputation, based on the, just the fact that she's a really good tennis player and that when you win at Roland Garros and Wimbledon, you can win anywhere. You're a good player regardless of the surface. The idea that Halep is, is just you know, a clay court force you know, that that notion, it never had full um, legitimacy, but if it had any remaining legitimacy, that was smashed for good forever at Wimbledon. So I'd probably put Hal at four and then at five. Hey, you can pick you can pick the name. You can pick the name out of the hat. Maybe it's Serena Williams. That would certainly be reasonable. But, you know, in terms of knowing what you're going to expect from her and also in terms of how the draw is going to shape up for her. That's the other thing. The thing about Serena Williams, which should be concerning, is that if she gets an extremely tough draw, she might not be able to stack up. You know, let's realize that at Wimbledon, her draw for the second straight year was very kind. I mean, she played uh, Rodina and Georgie and Gurgis in the fourth round quarters and semis in 2018. And then this year, she had Suarez Navarro, Risk, a good player, but still not, not, not one of the elites, and then she played uh, Stritsova in the semifinals. So her, her, her week two draws at Wimbledon the last two years have been incredibly soft. And then when she came up against an elite player who had already won a major champion in the final, she, she was knocked around. So if she gets a tough draw at the U.S. Open, it's probably not going to end well for her. She probably will need a manageable draw once again to make her way back to the final. Now, of course, she's Serena Williams. She can do anything. She can. I don't make that statement lightly. She's obviously going to be a contender. So I'm not trying to suggest that she isn't. But in terms of relying upon her to make a deep run, I'm not really sure. So I think I think that, you know, the idea that Pliskova is third and Serena fifth, a lot of people might scoff at that. And I and I understand why. But I think that's ultimately how my top five would be heading into New York. Yeah, I think uh, uh, I, I would just throw in Sloane Stevens there and I would place Simona Halep as number three because I think uh, based on our Wimbledon podcast, you said something which I believe is very true. Once you win a second major, that's like the big validation. You're not a one-hit wonder anymore. And that's as good as getting your first major off. And I think she's someone, you know, who's absolutely a tennis player at heart. And, you know, like not that the others are not, but I think Halep is more focused. She doesn't have, you know, in the last few years... Uh, in, in, according to me, doesn't have you know the more ups and downs. I think she did, does lose a lot of matches, but I think uh, coming back from Wimbledon win, I, I would like to keenly follow you know what lies ahead for her on the hard court campaign. And then Pliskova is solid, you know, has been knocking the door for a while. And Sloane Stevens is someone I think uh, who was defending champion last year. Now she's a good year removed from winning her tournament, or two years removed from winning her major 
uh, championship in Flushing Meadows. I think uh, she would be someone. Uh, maybe her tennis hasn't given us reasons, but again, I'm more like in the prediction mode, and I would be, I would be wrong for the hundredth time, which is fine. But I, I just uh, uh, wrong with Serena. I'm going to put Sloane in the conversation because I think that's going to be uh, that, that's going to be a fun uh, three week stretch that's coming up. And uh, uh, Halep and uh, Sloane Stevens are the two players I'm I'm keenly interested in how their results transpire leading up to the Big Apple. Absolutely. I think with Stevens, I think that's a great call on your part, Sakib. You know, the thing about Sloane Stevens is that she can be horrible in one major tournament and then the next one she, she you know, makes a run to the final. I mean, we, we have seen that from her. So the idea that she could go deep, uh, it, you know, it's not surprising. That's part of the tricky nature of predicting the WTA these days is that there are lots of players who have the game and who have the caliber of play that can relate that can result in a trip to the final and a possible title. You just don't know when each of those, you know, dozen to 15 players are going to turn it on and find the right formula. I mean, that's really the thing. Halep, you know, had a terrific Wimbledon. Barty had a terrific Roland Garros. You would have thought that they would have done extremely well at the other tournaments. You would have thought that Barty would have won Wimbledon. You would have thought that Halep would have won Roland Garros. So it's it's not as though these players don't have the capability to do great things. It's just when. When is it going to happen? So when will Sloane Stevens rediscover the on switch? If she won in New York, it would not be a surprise at all. It's just it's hard to expect and rely on her form to rise to the moment, just as that holds for Klishkova. Uh, really, all the players other than than Barty. I think Barty's the one player you can look at and say, all right, I can, I can fairly reasonably rely on her to be consistent and make a fairly deep run. Can I really rely on anyone else to be similarly consistent? You know, maybe Plishkova, um, but it, 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 to, with Plishkova, it's more about I can rely on her to get to the quarters, can I rely on her to get to the semis or final? Well, that's something which hasn't been borne out quite as much. So it's just lots of WTA players can win the U.S. Open. It's just will this be the time when they unleash the full measure of their games? That, that's the real question. It's very hard to predict. So predicting Stevens, that's an excellent choice, Sakib. It's just a matter of will this be her time? Yeah, and on that note, let's uh, wrap the show for this week. We'll be talking more Kvitova, Conta, and all the names like Muguruza, Maddie Keys that we haven't spoken about today. I'm sure there'll be plenty to discuss for those players and the favorites that me and Map just mapped out. And just a kind reminder to everyone, if you go and take maybe less than a minute it takes, go and review and rate the podcast on uh, iTunes and even Google Play. Uh, that'll just you know bring the podcast oh, you know more Google. Socket. No, Sakib, I need to just step in there. We're at Google Podcasts, not Google Play. And also, we are at Apple Podcasts, but not iTunes. So you don't want to go to iTunes or Google Play. You want to go to Apple, and you want to go to Google Podcasts. That's, and for listeners, that's been one of the things since our transition from our former production company, Radio Influence, to our current company, Red Circle, is that we have multiple feeds on the web when you search for us in a search engine. And so it's important to find the right feed so that you can subscribe, rate, and review. So Apple, not iTunes, and Google Podcasts, not Google Play. Those two companies, Google and Apple, they are transitioning their RSS podcast feeds 
uh, to specific outlets and they're leaving behind their old ones. So that's, that's just something I want to clarify for our listeners here. No, that, was, that was a good correction. So yeah, like Matt said, uh, do the needful and uh, we'll be back with another show uh, next week. Thanks for the support and thanks for listening. It's Saqib and Matt signing off from Tennis with an Accent. Bye for now.